You're listening to the First Corinthians When Immaturity Meets Worldliness series preached by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Take your Bibles, please, this morning and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's where we're going to be this morning. I think we can start like this. I think people know what I'm saying. He has risen. Right. We say that for Easter, and it's good. And I almost think we should say it all the time. Because it's all about the resurrection. We come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. And the entire chapter really is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if the resurrection is not true, we'll talk about that next week, then nothing else matters. Nothing. We might as well stop right now. Pack it up, go home, eat, drink, and be merry, or tomorrow you die. It's all about the resurrection of Christ. And I really do believe that if we as God's people could get that, that this morning we serve a risen Savior, it might transform us. It might just change us. And so Paul now is talking about the resurrection in this chapter, he begins in chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, by reviewing the gospel. Remember from last week, we said the gospel is simply what Paul tells us, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. And in that statement, he reminds us this morning that, that we were alienated from God. We were enemy combatants with God. We, as sinful humanity, sinners by nature and sinners by choice, deserve judgment. We deserve the wrath of a holy God poured out upon our head. And the truth is, if left in that state, every one of us will experience the wrath of God. Because either Jesus will pay for our sins, or we will pay for our sins ourselves. And so he says, listen, here's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, that's the bad news, that he was buried, again, bad news, you don't bury living people. He was dead, and on the third day, he rose again. And that's the good news of the gospel, that those who repent and faith believe the finished work of Christ can know him as their Savior, and be reconciled back to God. So, in verses 1 through 4, he reviews the gospel. In verses 5 through 7, he reminds us of the eyewitness account of the gospel. What he says is this. Listen, this is not a fairy tale. This is not the Brothers Grimm. This is not something we've made up. This is not just some fanciful story. There are eyewitnesses of what I'm telling you. He names Peter. He names James. Today we'll hear from Paul himself. And then he says, 500 people at one time. This is written about 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. And Paul says, now some of them have fallen asleep. And again, he's not talking about a church service. Okay? Stats tell us today that if you take all the people who fall asleep in church on a Sunday morning and lay them down from head to toe, just horizontally, they'd be more comfortable. Okay? So, so don't do that. We're, we're not going to lay you down. Okay? Sit up. Okay. And Paul says, no, these, these people were they were dead. Some of them are dead. But the, the majority are alive. And you can go ask them. They saw Christ. Eyewitness accounts. 
And then he recounts for us this morning his story, verses 8 through 11. And this is where we'll spend our time today. This is Paul's testimony. And and I have to tell you something. For me, personally, I really love to hear the testimonies of God's people. They're just, they're all different. Some people come to Christ at an early age. I mean, before you think they can even understand, four or five years old. Others come in a special service, either maybe a teen at a camp meeting or a revival. Others have their family and their loved ones witness to them and tell them the truth of the gospel and they're converted. And it's just everyone's different. I mean, the self-righteous and the irreligious. I mean, we all have a story, and the truth is they are all different, but they're all the same. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. And Paul's going to give us his personal testimony. Don't ever underestimate the power of your testimony. Don't do it. It's powerful. Some people say, I don't know how I, I, don't know how I would witness. I don't know how I could share my faith. Here's how you do it. You tell them what happened to you. This is what I was. This is what I did. This is what I thought. And then Christ stepped into my life. Someone told me. I heard the word. I was convicted. I was reading by myself. Someone gave me a gospel tract. And I understood for the first time that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. And I repented and I believed. And Christ saved me. And now this is how he's changing my life. That's our testimony. We should be sharing it. And now Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is going to begin now to tell us his testimony, starting at verse number 8. And this gives us a good outline, I think, for ourselves in sharing our faith. But there's so much here. And and here's my prayer this morning. We'll see Paul's testimony, and it's powerful. But but in the backdrop of all of this, you're going to see God's grace. And my prayer this morning, even by the songs we sang already this morning, that we would come into a more profound and robust understanding of grace the unmerited favor of God. And that, not only coming in contact again with this grace, will give us this robust understanding, but it will profoundly change us. Grace should change us. You're going to see it in Paul's life. Verse number 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. And last of all, he was seen of me, also as one born out of due time. And so Paul says, I'm going to give you my testimony. I came late to the game. This is a, it's a, an interesting verse because there are scholars who believe when Paul uses this phrase, one born out of due time, it's the word ectroma. It's a strange word. It means miscarry. It means abortive. And, and later he had the connotation of freakish, like a freak thing that happened. And there are some people who think Paul uses this term because the Corinthians were saying that about him. He wasn't Peter. He wasn't eloquent like Apollos. He was sort of a freak of nature. He was sort of one born out of time, like a miscarriage there. And whether they mean that or not, I don't know if it has to do with his title. We don't know that from Corinthians. It's nice to speculate, but here's what it does mean. It's talking about his time frame. He says, listen, I came late to the game. I wasn't with the apostles. I didn't have three and a half years with Christ. I wasn't there in the upper room. And so in my testimony, I was late. 
wasn't early on in the event. Verse number 9. He says then, For I am least of the apostles that I meet or worthy to be called an apostle. So Paul says, My testimony goes like this. I was late, and then I am the least. The least. Now in our culture today, when someone says that, if Paul were writing today and Paul said, Man, I'm, I'm the least. I'm just... I'm not worthy to be even called an apostle. We would think that, man, Paul's parents didn't post enough pictures of him on Facebook. And and he's really struggling now with his self-esteem. I mean, if they would have just posted more of Paul as a little boy eating his lamb and mutton SpaghettiOs and finishing them and posting it, look at what Paul has done. Ooh, ah, riveting. Maybe he didn't get enough likes on some of his selfies. And so he said, man, I'm I'm just nobody. I have to tell you something. We live in a strange, strange world. Parents, let me help you. We're going to get back here, but let me help you this morning. Okay. Um, We keep on telling our kids, they're the most beautiful. They're the most handsome. They're the most intelligent. They are geniuses. And we post every event in their life, and we wonder why they grow up to be narcissistic men and women who all they care about are themselves. Because we've been teaching them they are the center of the universe. We're not helping them. How does a kid like that survive in life with disappointment? with rejection, we're rewarding them for waking up in the morning. We're praising them because they finished their food. They dress themselves. Oh, my goodness. Are we insane? And the answer is yes. Listen to me. What do we do with the ugly kids? Um, no, really. I, I saw No, never mind. <laughs> I wish one day we had, you know, it's free to say whatever you want to say on Facebook Day. And just for one day, we could honestly put the comments that we believe. I promise you, those thousand friends who really aren't your friends, if you did that for one day, you wouldn't have any friends. Or a minister. You're exactly right. My wife has stopped me several times from commenting what I want to say on there. It's insane. And Paul says, I'm the least. It's not, it's not some kind of self-esteem issue for Paul. Paul knew who he was. He tells us why. I came late to the game. I want to tell you something. I am not worthy. It has nothing to do with Facebook posts. He says, look what he says, because I persecuted the church. I'm the one who persecuted the church. We've been blessed over the book of Acts. I, I know you're well-versed in it. But it would be worth our while to talk about Paul's past, because this is part of his testimony. And we're first introduced to Paul in Acts chapter 7, the story of Stephen. Stephen is becoming one of my favorite um, examples in scripture, because it's amazing. Remember, he was chosen, one of the seven first deacons. He's proclaiming the gospel. What happens is, as he's proclaiming the gospel, the high priests in Sanhedrin bring him up on charges. And so now he stands in front of them, and, and he's He's speaking on his behalf, but he starts with history. It's story time. He is just giving a wonderful history of Israel's, um, you know, the redemptive history. And, and the high priest and the um, Sanhedrin are listening, and everything's fine because it's a story. But the minute he makes a personal application, things change. 
Can I tell you something about our world that we live in today? As long as Christianity is undefined, it's absorbable. We can say things like, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And the world's okay with that. They can absorb that. But when we start to define Christianity and say, wait a minute, it doesn't stop there. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Now it's defined, and now it's not popular. Because what we're saying is, all roads don't lead to heaven. Can I tell you something? That is the most ridiculous statement you can make. We can't all be right. You might be right, and I might be wrong. Or we can both be wrong. We can't all be right. It's impossible, right? And what we're saying is, when we define Christianity is, broad is the way, wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many there be that are on it. And straight is the way. Narrow is the gate. It's through Christ and Christ alone. And if you're debating which one's right, I'll tell you where I'll put my money. I'd put my money every time on the only man in human history who said, I'm going to lay my life down, and three days later I'm getting up. I put my money there. Because three days later he got up. And so, so the story time for the Sanhedrin, it's fine. But now Stephen is going to make a personal application. Here's the history. Now let me apply this to your life. Now you think I'm harsh. Listen to me. This is the first thing he says to the high priest in Sanhedrin after he tells him this beautiful story about Israel's history. He says this. You stiff-necked. We don't use that term, but it's not nice. Okay? Talking to Jewish men. You uncircumcised in heart and lips. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And you have murdered the just one. How's that for application? Guess what? The story now wasn't palatable. They are enraged now. I mean, in, they're gnashing their teeth. And then he says, I see, G, I see the Son of God standing, the Son of Man standing next to the throne. And now they go crazy and they pull their jacket. Okay, are we good? Can you hear me now? I'm doing a telus. Can you hear me now? Okay. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And the idea there is not that he was just watching the clothes for these guys to throw. Saul had heard the trial. He had heard the testimony. And now he is pleased at Stephen's death. You watch it happen and applaud it. And then it says... About a certain time, the Jews are going on there in Samaria. And then verse number 2, go to 3. It says, and Saul made havoc of the church. This is the guy we're talking about. This is his testimony. Made havoc of the church. He, he, he now, he, he wants to be a champion for Judaism. And so he says, listen, the people this way, they got to die. And he's, hauling, he's going to homes, hauling off men and women, pulling them out of their house, and committing them to prison and death. I'm not exaggerating. Paul would be a modern-day ISIS fighter with a Jewish flavor. This is Paul. He said, I came late, and I am the least. I am not worthy. I was persecuting the church. Look what happens next. 
Verse number 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. The word's not in here. But here's, he's going back to that, 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 that encounter on Damascus. And so Paul says, in my testimony now, I was late, I was the least, but I saw the light. I saw the light. And when he says, I saw the light, it wasn't a boxcar, really. I saw the light, I saw the light. He saw the light. Noonday, he's on the road to Damascus, and this brightness appears, brighter than the sun. He falls to the ground and says, and he hears a voice that says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are thou, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus. You're persecuting. It's me. It's Jesus. Paul repents. This is all grace. An enemy of God, an enemy of Christ, an enemy of his church is now converted. And I think sometimes we don't understand the, the magnitude of Paul's conversion. There was a, I, I don't know his name now. I, I, I should have had it, though. But he was a skeptic back in the 1700s. He was a skeptic, an atheist, wanted to, to disprove Christianity. And so he thought he'd go through the book of Luke and Acts because it was so detailed. He came to the conversion of Paul, Saul into Paul. And by the time he was done, he was converted to Christianity. It is a powerful testimony of Paul's changed life. Once an enemy of the cross, now he is saved. So Paul says, I was late, I was least, I saw the light. Now let's go to verse number 10. Midway through, he says, I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. So last point, we said he's late, he's least, he saw the light. You want to guess what the next one, beginning with letter L is? Go back one verse to verse number 10. He labored. He worked. Now get this. Paul wasn't working to obtain grace. He was working because he already had grace. And what Paul says is, I'm preaching, I'm proclaiming, and, and the fact is I'm not glorifying myself. This grace was given by God. Given by God. That's Paul's testimony. Now, this morning, let's just finish off by giving three lessons about grace from the life of Paul this morning. Here's the first one I want you to get. I want you to see the power of grace. The power of grace. We see in Paul's life the power of grace to first convert. Convert. This is an extraordinary event. Here is Paul, the persecutor. Now he is converted to to Paul, the apostle of Christ. And this is amazing grace. Listen, for some of us this morning, I think we hear the story of Paul and we say, well, that's Paul and that's grace for Paul because, I mean, I'm not persecuting the church. I wasn't like Paul. I'm not as bad. Can I tell you something? Your sin and my sin hung Christ to the cross. We're all bad. And we're all guilty. And this is amazing grace that we were once blind, now we see. We were lost, now we're found. We were dead in trespasses and sin, and now we're brought to life. This is the power of grace. It has the power to convert. And some folks say, well, I just need to be more religious. You don't need to be more religious. Paul was more religious than anyone in this room. You don't need more religion. You need Jesus. That's the power of grace. It converts. And then we have the power of grace to change. Paul persecuted the church. 
Now he proclaims Christ. Um, we have to be careful here. For some of us, we, we, after salvation, we continue to say things like this. That's just the way I am. I was raised that way. I just can't help it that I'm angry, bitter, sour, unapproachable, lustful. I gossip. I just can't help it. That's the way I am. My friend, you are rendering the gospel and grace impotent. Because God's grace does change us. The truth is, if you have a salvation that didn't change you or doesn't change you, you don't have salvation, man. God loves you too much to leave you the way he found you. And we are not set in concrete this morning. We have issues, we have problems, but it's God's grace that not only converts us, but it changes us. And I have a hunch this morning, if it changed Paul, it might just be able to change you and your attitude and your issues. That's the power of grace. Number two, the privilege of grace. The privilege of grace. Paul had a past. We all have a past. I, I don't care who you are in this room this morning. Every one of us, we have a past. And for some of us, people know about it. For others, they don't. We concealed it. It was hidden. But we have a past. Paul had a past. Past. But the truth is, when you look at Paul's past, it did not grip him with guilt. It did not cripple him in service. Paul had a past. He was unfit for the task. But God's grace, the privilege of God's grace. God's grace didn't remove the obstacles of the past. Your past is the past. But what God's grace does is it overcomes those obstacles in our life. We don't have to hang our head. We don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to worry and live in guilt and fear. This is the privilege of grace. You say, Rick, I'm not worthy of that. Duh! It's why they call it grace. The unmerited favor of God. It is a privilege. You say, I'm not worthy. I'm not fit. I'm not able. I'm not equipped. Yes, that's true. And God, by his grace, then, makes us worthy. He makes us sufficient. He makes us able. He's the one that equips us. And the privilege of grace is to say, listen, I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to hang my head. I've been redeemed and given grace. I think Newton helps us the best with this. John Newton, one of my favorite quotes by him, you know the slave trader, wicked, ungodly man. He said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. My friend, listen to me. This is the privilege of grace. My past doesn't have to cripple me. My past doesn't have to flood in with guilt in my life. I know about the past. God knows about the past. Newton knew about the past. He said, by God's grace this morning, I am what I am. I'm not what I used to be. I'm certainly not what I want to be, but I'm not what I used to be. This is the privilege of grace. And then I want to talk about the product of grace. The product of grace. Um, Grace, because it's unmerited, it doesn't require a response 
Now, listen to what I'm saying about this. There, there are times you think, okay, I've been given God's grace. I think I understand God's grace. And so, therefore, I'm going to do, 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 do. That's not it. Grace doesn't require a response, but here's what it does. It elicits a response. It engenders a response. It awakens a response. When I finally get a hold of the fact that I've been redeemed by the grace of God, that I'm a sinner worthy of death and hell, that my past is forgiven, my future is secure, when that grips me, it's not like I do to repay grace. I can't repay grace. I do to show my love to God. And what I do, it's all by his grace. I think the best way to understand this might be an illustration. When our kids were younger, AJ and Greg, they were in a Christian school, and they had, I don't know if they still do this, but they had um, gift boutiques. Do they do gift boutiques where the kids go and buy stuff for their parents? I, this is what we did anyway. So around Christmas time, the kids came home. They're all excited. we got a gift boutique this Friday. So fill out this paperwork, and it was, you know, how many people are in your house? Your mom, your dad, maybe a little brother. And uh, then you need to bring in at least $10. So the kids come home. It's like, we got this gift boutique. It's going to be great. And um, they don't have any money. Or if they have money, it's a couple pennies. And they're all excited. And so the scam is that they come home for the gift boutique, and the parents have to give them the money to buy the gift. It's really ingenious, actually. And so here the kid goes, he brings in a slip back, the boys are there with their money, my money, and they're buying gifts for me. And here's the truth. We didn't need a potholder. Right? We didn't need, you know, a popsicle stick pen holder cup. What happens? Those kids took my money, our money, went and bought gifts for us with our money. They come back, and now all of a sudden, here I am crying over a potholder because the results are glorious. That's grace, my friend. Every good thing we have is from him. And when I get a hold of this then, what I long to do now is I long to say, God, because of your grace, You've given me grace to live today. You've given me grace to enable me to do these things. It's all from you, but let me spend it on you. And the results are glorious. Glorious. Paul says, this is God's grace. It produces labor. And what he says is that grace was bestowed upon me, so my labor, so I labored, and that grace wasn't in vain. So as we close this morning, I just want to talk to you for a few minutes. Because Paul says, Grace was given to me, and so I labor because I don't want that grace to be in vain. I I wonder this morning for you and I, if that grace that we've been given can be saved by God, by the blood of Christ, to to enable us every day to live and to enjoy life, are we wasting it? Is that grace that was given to you, that was given to me, is it vain? Is it empty now? Are, Are we just squandering that grace? I'll give you two things this morning that I hope you walk away with when it comes to grace and asking yourself, was that grace in vain to me? Paul said, I don't want to be that way, so therefore I do two things. The first is implied, I think. The second is explicit. The first is this. That grace, in order in my life to operate in a way that shows it's not in vain, I must forsake sin. 
Paul was a persecutor, he stopped persecuting. Sin forsaken, J.C. Ryle says, is one of the best evidences of, of forgiven sin. Sin forsaken is one of the best evidences of sin forgiven. When I come to Christ, one of the best evidences that I've been saved and experienced God's grace is that sin in my life that was so captivating to me, I don't want it anymore. I'm done with that. And, and this is not just for salvation. Can I tell you something this morning? All of us as believers, you know we still deal with our flesh, the world, and Satan. Every day. Every day. And we have sin in our life today that must be forsaken. If we understand grace, we say, wait a minute, by this grace, I can't do this. I heard a great quote by um, Tim Keller last week. He said, the sin that is most destructive in your life right now is the one that you are most defensive about. <laughs> Man. And it's destructive, and we defend it. And what has to happen is we have to say, wait a minute, because of this grace, I forsake this. Now, now here's the problem. I've got to be honest with you. This is really tough for Christian people. Uh, Kim's been, been listening to a cassette. No, they don't make cassettes anymore, do they? CDs. All right. He's listening to a CD. They don't make cassettes. I'm sorry. That was old, from the 80s. It was a cassette that, that I think Dan and Tara brought back from from the conference. In the cassette, this woman made a fascinating statement. She said, um, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. Now listen to that again. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. And so let me tell you what happens here. When it comes to forsaking sin in our own lives, we can never quite have victory because we really want to love Jesus, but we don't know enough about Jesus. You hear messages Sunday morning, Sunday night. You hear them at Bible studies. You hear them at youth gatherings. You hear them all the time. All the time. And, and the reason we do that is because it's not like, let's just generate people. Let's get them all amped up. Listen to me. Your heart can't love what you do not know. And what we try to do is this. Say, wait a minute. Here's what the word of God says. Here's what, who Jesus is. He is the Almighty One. He is uh, the second person in the Trinity. Understand his work, his mission, what he accomplished. Understand justification and sanctification and adoption and being in Christ, and all of these truths. And when I start to do that, I begin to see the beauty of Christ. And now my heart has something to love. And when I can love Christ and see his beauty, it changes everything. Listen to me. Religious people find God useful. You can do something for me. Christian people need to find him beautiful. And when I finally see Christ in his beauty, can I tell you something? Not that every time, but it's easier to forsake sin because he's beautiful now. I'm adoring him. This means nothing. When I engaged my wife some 28 or 9 years ago, okay, I, I remember it like yesterday. I got on one knee in a restaurant overlooking the lake, Lake Erie at the time, and I proposed to Kim Manning. And, of course, she said yes. You know the rest of the story. Can I tell you, the next day when I got up, I didn't say, ah, oh, stink. There's a bunch of girls I want to date, and I just blew it with that engagement last night. I can't believe I did that. Or, man, there's a couple of girls, I think they're cute, and it's like, I just, man, what was I thinking? That was so stupid. 
Can I tell you something? I never did that. Never. I was glad because I adored her. My, my, my eyes were for her. My heart was for her. She is, it, she's all of it for me. Other chicks, no sway. No way. None. This is it right here. Can I tell you something? That, when we see Christ for his beauty, it's not like, ah, oh, I don't get to do my sin anymore. It's not it. I don't want to. I don't want to. I'm talking about all of our sin. You might not be persecuting the church. We got our issues. When I see the beauty of Christ, everything else is cheap and meaningless and empty. Is grace being wasted in your life? If you're not seeing the beauty of Christ, you're getting all caught up in sin and nonsense and all kinds of garbage. And so Paul forsook sin, and then he served the Savior. We've been given grace. We, we ought to serve him. And listen to me. Here's the glory of grace. It doesn't matter about your past. It doesn't matter about your mistakes. It doesn't matter about your failures. God has given you grace to overcome those things. He doesn't change your past. Your past is your past. But by his grace, it has new meaning now. It's redemptive. All of it's redemptive. It's a story to tell. And I can now serve the Lord by the grace he's given me. He gives me grace to serve him every day. I can serve my Savior right where he has planted me. God, I don't want to waste this, this grace that you've given me. I don't want it to be in vain. Therefore, I am going to serve you. Now listen to me. Our biggest problem is, for many of you, you think, this up here, this is service. Listen to me. Can you imagine if every believer in this room left this place with the idea they're going to serve Christ, how much more would be accomplished than what this is going right now? You have been given grace, and God has planted you someplace, and he has planted you, you uniquely there to serve him. Let me, let me help some of our stay-at-home moms this, this morning. Raising kids tough, yes or no? Yeah, if you said no, you haven't raised kids. Okay? It, it's really tough. And I, and I, I got to tell you, there's, there's times I hate the social media, the blogs and nonsense. And, and there's these people clamoring, saying, I can't wait. Mother's saying, I can't wait until these kids are raised so I can do real ministry. Really? Real ministry? Can you tell me what's more real in the ministry of Christ than having a captive audience for 18 years and pouring your life into them? and showing them the love of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ and how to flesh this thing out, and producing the next generation of the church of Jesus Christ. Ministry? Really? God has placed you there. He's put you where you're at, and, and I don't want this grace to be squandered. God, you've given it to me. You've placed me here. So go out and serve him. Hey, here's a thought. Go to work on time. I'm not serving the Lord. Yes, it is. It's your testimony. You know, work is not part of the curse. I know some of you think that, oh, man, if Adam blew it and now we have to work, eh, false. 
Adam had a job before the fall. We were made to work. You cannot feel good about yourself being a lazy bum or bumette. You can't. You were created to work. And through our work, we can glorify our Savior. Show up on time. Work hard all day, whether the supervisor is watching or not. Oh, yeah, this is real. You don't like this ministry. You, you like the ministry where you get to stand up and tell people stuff. This is where real life happens. This is ministry. This is serving our Savior. This is saying, look it, I've been changed by God's grace, and my attitude and my actions are different now. Go be nice to your neighbor. They're calling the cops on them every day. Go deal with them. Go love them. Go cut their grass. Go give them some cookies. Go, go help somebody. Serve the Savior. Do not let this grace be in vain. We should live and serve in such a way that unbelievers question their own faith. I don't know about your Jesus, but i got to tell you something. Your attitude's different. Your life is different. Your home is different. Not that you don't have problems, but you deal with them. It's, it's different. And this is grace. Grace is powerful. It converts and it changes. Grace is, there's a privilege to it. It doesn't change you can't throw your past away. You have a past. I have a past. Grace overcomes those things. And they become useful for the cause of Christ. I, I would have never believed as a seven-year-old boy when my family broke up that it could be something you could ever rejoice in. A broken home. I've got to tell you something. Back then, back in the 70s, I was the only kid in my class from a broken home. And when I went to a different school, I was one of only three kids in the entire school from a broken home. How times have changed. They have changed. It's sad. It's sad. And I would have never have dreamt that I could someday say, God, in my past, by your grace, I thank you. But I can. I talk to my mom often. And, and every now and then she, she apologizes about having to raise three boys and make mistakes, and she wished it could change, and she wished it could have been different. And the truth is, I always tell her, I don't. I don't wish it could be different. I'm the man I am today because of that. And, and I have empathy for people today because of that. And I, and I understand a little bit because of that, and I thank God for it. This is a privilege of grace. My past doesn't cripple me. I'm not guilty. It doesn't matter. It's my past. I've been given grace. Grace. Grace produces labor. Not to keep it. You can't. It's all God's grace to even have it. it. It produces labor because I say, God, I love you. I love you for this grace. I don't want your investment in my life to be wasted. I'm going to serve you. And so this week, let's leave this place saying, God, by your grace, I don't want it to be wasted. Help me to forsake that sin. That sin. That sin that you are ready to defend right now. God, I, I want to see your beauty. I don't want this to have sway over me. Help me to forsake this sin. If you need help, grab somebody, talk to somebody, say, pray for me. This is a real area. Can I tell you something? Sin always grows in darkness. Always. When we hide things, it grows. When we expose it to light, it scatters. There's help. God, I don't want to waste your grace. Help me to forsake this sin. And Lord, by your grace now, you have placed me here in this family, in this neighborhood, in this shop, 
in this assembly line, in this youth group. Help me to serve you. Paul says, by his grace, I am what I am. And God for his grace this morning. Let's have a word of prayer.